John chapter 5, 1 to 18. Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath and equal with God. Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath and equal with God. 5 verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have given us your word and that we can understand it. We know, Lord, that because your Holy Spirit dwells in us, he will teach us and guide us into all the truth. We pray, Lord, that we will grow in this knowledge of the truth more carefully, more accurately, understanding your expectations of us. May we also, Father, understand the, your greatness and your glory the, the majesty and power that you have and that we should rely upon you. Rely upon you and all of your greatness and all your goodness in all things. Be with us as we meditate on these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. In this message, I would like to first explain verses 1 to 18 and then go back and pick up on a few verses to 
highlight some points about what we find in this passage. Verses 1 to 18 make up one complete narrative or one complete incident and the the aftermath of that incident. The first part of it, verses 1 to 9, are basically the backdrop, the background of all of this. And then the repercussions of it or the aftermath of it from verse 9 to verse 18, 9 to 18. So first, the background and what's happening and then the result of what Jesus does when he encounters this man. Verse 1, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the previous chapter, Jesus was in Judea and then he made his way from Judea or Jerusalem, that area. He made his way through Samaria and finally he uh, reaches Galilee in the north. So Judea in the south, Samaria north of that, and then Galilee. That's by the end of chapter 4. He was in Galilee. But as we know, the Jews, they have their annual festivals. They have several annual festivals, and it is incumbent upon the Jews to go to Jerusalem, where the temple was, for them to celebrate their festivals there throughout the year. Well, a few months later, or a few weeks later, depending on which festival this was, which feast this was, Jesus returns to Judea. He goes to Jerusalem, the capital where the temple was. The temple was there in the capital city, the main city of Judea, Jerusalem. He goes there. Then when he goes there, verse 2 says, there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate was a pool. There were various gates, various gates of the city, and one of those gates was called the sheep gate, presumably because whenever they needed sheep to come into Jerusalem for the purpose of the temple and the sacrifices, that was the gate that they used. It was a convenient gate to use, a designated gate to use, so it uh, derived or received the name sheep gate. And next to the sheep gate was a pool, a pool of water. And in this pool of water, it says in Hebrew, it's called Bethesda. So the name of the pool, oftentimes we give names to pools and rivers and lakes, right? And oceans, we give names so that we know which one we're talking about. Here in this case, they give it the name Bethesda. And if you check your marginal note, it's known by different names. Sometimes it's called Bethsaida or Bethzatha. We're talking about the same one. It depends on the spelling of the original language in the various manuscripts. We're talking about the same one. Now, it says in verse 2 in Hebrew, it's important to keep in mind that when the Apostle John is saying Hebrew, what he means is the language spoken commonly by the Hebrew people or the Jewish people. But if we study this period of history, it was not the Hebrew language they were speaking in terms of from our perspective. They were actually speaking the Aramaic language in its Jewish or Hebrew form. That is, it's another language related to Hebrew called Aramaic, which was a language of those that were farther north of them and farther northeast of them, the Aramaic language. But the Jews, just like in English, even though English is spoken in many places, not only in the United States, but around the world, there are different versions of English, different, different sayings, different common words, and di- different expressions, different ways of spelling it, and things like that. 
Well, in the Aramaic language, it was the same, but the Jewish or the Hebrew people's form of the Aramaic language is what they spoke. Jesus spoke, Jesus' disciples spoke it, the common people spoke it. A lot of people knew that language. Yes, Greek was a common language, but also Aramaic was a common language in this period of time, both of them. And it is likely that Jesus, he knew at least three, if not four languages, the three or four languages that he would have known. For sure, he would have known Hebrew. He would have known Aramaic or the Jewish Aramaic, which is what John means here. And he would have known Greek and also, fourthly, Latin, because the Roman Empire had conquered the world by that time. And even though Greek was more common than Latin, Latin began to be a common language. It was at least the common language of the officials, the Roman government, the soldiers, because they were most, mostly in, in many parts of the Roman Empire, Roman soldiers. So they had to know some Latin to be able to communicate in, um, in those areas and territories of the Roman Empire. Well, it is this language that has this name Bethesda and the Jewish form of it. Now, it has five porticos, five porticos or, or places or areas around this pool where they had a, an overhang or a covering like a roof where people could be there and have some shelter from the elements, some shelter from the rain and some shelter from the sun. And this we see sometimes in various other parts uh, of the world in certain places where it's meant to be a public place and you don't have doors as such necessarily. You just have open space, but with pillars and a roof above. So there were five of these. And in this place, what do we see in verse 3? In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. These kinds of people who had sicknesses that doctors could not resolve, blindness and lameness and withered hands and limbs, that is, some people, they have hands and limbs or, or, or arms and, and legs that don't get the proper supply of blood, proper treatment. So then when that happens, they are withered. Fingers, right, that are withered because they don't have blood flow. They don't have the necessary nutrients from the blood, from the food that they eat to go to those parts. And so basically they have a worthless finger or worthless thumb or worthless hand, something like that. And... Those were the kinds of people who were there. In our case, it's likely that this man was lame. He was lame in at least one of his legs, if not both of his legs, because we know in verse 8, Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. A pallet or a board, some kind of board where he resided and people helped him get from place to place. That's what he had he, that's where he was usually positioned or stationed on something like that. So the man that Jesus heals here is likely a lame man given the ability to walk with both of his legs and because we do see and know that he does that because it says in verse 9, and immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Well, what was the custom or what was the unusual environment that made these sick and lame people assemble there, to group there. What happened? 
Verse 4 says, verse, uh, verses 3 and 4, they would be waiting there for the moving of the waters for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. So an angel of the Lord, an angel of God would come at certain seasons, at certain times and stir up the water so that whoever went first in there when the water was stirred up, when he first touched the water, stepped into the water, whatever his affliction, whatever his ailment, whatever his sickness, whatever that was, that first person would be healed. Well, you can imagine with the lame man, it's going to be hard, right? It's hard to move quickly or to get your friends to help you move quickly and go there and do so. And it's unpredictable. It says at certain seasons, likely it was unpredictable because if it were predictable, the lame man would have had his friends ready and, and available to help him get into the pool of water. So an, at unpredictable times, at certain seasons, an angel of the Lord would come and miraculously individuals would be healed. The first one would be healed. Verse five. Now this man, he was 38 years in his sickness. 38 years. That's a long time to have this kind of illness. And however long he was there at the pool and at one of the porticos waiting and waiting and waiting, he was waiting a very, very long time, most likely. We don't know if this means he was 38 years old or 40 years old or 45 years old. We don't know because his lameness might have been something he experienced from birth or it could have been something he experienced because of an injury, being a young child and injuring himself somehow. Or even, this also happens in the world, sometimes crooks, crooks and gangsters, crooks and gangsters, they will maim and lame people in order to mistreat them, in order to get them to do what they want. This happens all around the world, even in the United States, that there will be people, children, who are made to be handicapped because of the crooks, the criminals in these gangs who make that and do that to other people. We don't know what his circumstance was, but 38 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? John tells us that Jesus already knew about that man's plight. He already knew about that man's troubles. He already knew. But Jesus asked him anyways. Why do you think he asked him? He asked him to get an answer and the interest coming up, bubbling up to the top from the man in order to begin this dialogue and in order for the man to be the recipient of this miracle. It was not because Jesus was ignorant that he asked him, but it was in order to begin this process the taking the necessary steps or not the necessary, but the divine steps or the the divinely desired steps in order to get this man to realize what was about to happen to him and to be experiencing what Jesus himself was going to provide him. Not the angel of the Lord, not any physician, not any other priest or prophet, but Jesus himself be the source of his health. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man 
to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but when I am coming, another steps down before me. That's his predicament. He has this predicament or dilemma. I don't have anybody to help me, to help me get there in time. Now, in this case, in verse 7, he may not have had any friends because he says, I have no man to put me into the pool. Maybe he had nobody to help him whatsoever. Perhaps people disliked him. Perhaps people hated him so much. Perhaps people did not think. They, they were so callous. They were so cold-hearted about a sick man that they wanted nothing to do with the sick man. And notice who also wanted nothing to do with the sick man. The Jews who attack Christ. The Jews who want to persecute and kill Christ. They even, these religious men, wanted nothing to do with the sick man to help him to experience a miracle to be healed. They didn't even want to help him. Verse 8, verses 8 and 9, Christ helps him. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. Jesus, by a word. Jesus did not have to exert a lot of energy. He did not have to pray and pray and pray for hours or days. He did not have to fast. Jesus did not have to do anything to exert physical strength in order to heal him. Just like God in Genesis chapter 1. Darkness was everywhere, right? When God created everything on the first day, it says darkness was over the surface of the deep. Genesis 1 verse 2. But in the next verse it says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. In the same way, Jesus spoke the word and it happened. He just did that. He did not have to exert a lot of energy or anything. Take up your pallet and walk. All that he needed to do was to say, arise. Arise. And that's a simple word. And that's just one word, right? Arise. Or get up. That's all he had to say. Rise up. But he also tells him to take up your pallet and walk. Take up your pallet. That means pick up your board, whatever, however it was made, perhaps of wood with, with a cloth over it to make it a little more comfortable to sit on it and lie down on it. He probably had that. And he says, take up your pallet. So he's telling the, the healed man, the healthy man, to pick it up and to walk. And if he's going to walk, he's going to walk to some more beneficial or comfortable place. Because it's not comfortable to be there in the portico, right there by the pool, with just the open uh, space where, and the roof above you, it's not comfortable. Nobody wants to live in that kind of condition. Now that he's healthy, perhaps he wants to go meet his family and friends. Perhaps he wants to go to the temple. Perhaps he wants to do something else to, to express how he's been healed and to share the joy with someone else. But if he walks away with the pallet, He's exerting some effort, right? And the Jews who attack Christ want to attack Christ for that reason. And does Jesus know all this? Of course. Look at verse 9. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. It was the Sabbath on that day. Did Jesus do right or did Jesus do wrong on the Sabbath day? Well, we know 
He was one who committed no sin, nor was any, any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 22. We know from Hebrews 4, 15, that he was tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Without sin. We also know from John 8, 46, uh, that 41 and 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? He challenged the people to convict him, to show him his sin. Jesus did not commit any sin. He was an unblemished lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus was. So he didn't commit a sin, yet on the Sabbath day, he does this. We'll see that Jesus did this on purpose. Everything he did was with purpose, intentionality, meaning. He didn't do things um, based on a whim. He didn't do things based on just his feelings and whatever he thought he wanted to do. He did it with purpose. Verse 10. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Can you imagine this? The Jews find the cured man, the healthy man who was sick, who was lame. They find this man and instead of rejoicing with him, instead of being happy with him, instead of celebrating and holding a party, going to his relatives and telling them, this is what has happened to your son. This is what has happened to your brother. This is what has happened to your relative. No, look at him now. Instead of doing something like that and glorifying God, they were so evil. These Jewish leaders were so evil that they approach him and say, it is the Sabbath. It is not per, uh, permissible for you to carry your pallet. This is common. You will find that when a transformation has occurred in a man, when a transformation has occurred, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, uh, male, female, boy or girl, it, uh, adult or not, it doesn't matter. When one person in the family has a transformation because the Holy Spirit has taken a hold of that person's life because he has believed the gospel and he begins to live a godly life, you will find that the people who used to like him before that in that same family or friendship, then those people will turn against him and say, well, what do you think you are now? You're not a Christian, are you? You think you're better than we are? Are you not going to do the same things we used to do? Go out and party and go out and do this and that. You're not going to do the same thing anymore? Who are you? What do you think you're about? They don't rejoice with this person who wants to be an upstanding person, be upright and uh, uh, honest person, and not practice the same sins that he used to practice with them. They won't be happy about it. In, in fact, they're going to find fault with him, just like what happened here. They say it's the Sabbath, which they misunderstood. We'll find out that they misunderstood the purpose of the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. You can imagine how they would have done so with the frown on their face, despising the man. The man answers, the healed man, healthy man answers in verse 11. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, take up your pallet and walk. He ascribes his actions to Christ. Now, 
here in this passage, it does not explicitly say that this man said it in spite, that the man didn't believe in Christ, that the man received the benefit of Christ but turned against Christ. It does not explicitly say that, nor does the passage explicitly say he became a believer, that he became a believer and he did it because he wanted to ascribe the glory to Christ and that he was obeying Christ. It does not explicitly say that. But if we were to, to guess, I would guess on, this, on the part of the second that he became a believer and was trying to ascribe it to Christ. Though the people he told used it against Christ. He's trying to ascribe glory to Christ, but the people who hear him and challenge him see him as a healthy man. They want to use it against the man and against Christ. Verse 12. Verse 12. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? Now they want to chase after him. They want to chase after Christ to find out and interrogate Christ, and even, as we find in verse 18, to put him to death. He identifies the man, verse 13. Um, I'm sorry, verse 13. But he who was healed did not know who it was, so the man didn't know exactly the, the identity of Christ. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. At this point, the man doesn't know precisely the identity of his healer. He does not know precisely the identity. He did not know he was a prophet at the very least, nor did he know he was the Son of God, the Christ, the Savior of the world. He didn't know. As John tells us, verse 13, did not know who it was. However, Jesus identifies himself, 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may befall you. Now he's teaching him and explaining to him what has happened. He became well, but do not sin anymore. Do not sin anymore, or something worse may happen to you. Something worse. Perhaps death, physical death immediately, not just a handicap, not just an ailment, but immediate death could happen. And if he's not talking about merely the physical consequences of sinning, the spiritual consequences. Because if one practices sin, then he is an unbeliever and he is thrown into hell. He's thrown into the, the lake of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is the outer darkness and people are in torment there. That would be certainly worse than anything that we experience physically in this world. So Jesus warns him of that. Then 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. It was Jesus who had made him well. They actually know now that it was Christ and no one else, no other prophet, who did this? 16. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The Jews, and by the Jews, it means 
the religious leaders, the teachers among the Jews, the authorities, those who had the clout, those who had the power, those who knew the Bible to some degree, those are the ones he's talking about. These Jews persecuted Jesus because he did this on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, the day that one was supposed to worship and rest, Jesus performed this miracle and they turned against him. They used that as an excuse to attack Christ. Well, when Jesus knew of this, what did he say? What did he say to them? 17. Already there is heat, right? There's already there's conflict and they want to do him wrong. 17. But he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. My father is working until now and I myself am working. Jesus does not let up. Jesus, there's already a conflict and Jesus knows that, but he continues the conflict to make this point. He makes the point that his father is working until now and he himself is working. Meaning that the work of the Father and Jesus' work are in harmony. And they work together. They are of one mind. They're not working contrary to each other, but they are working in unison. They are working together. My Father and Christ, they're working together. And in this way, Jesus is saying, the deeds I'm doing, even on the Sabbath day, the works I'm doing on the Sabbath day are in harmony with God. So if Jesus is in harmony with God on the Sabbath day, then his critics should be in harmony with God. Because if they contradict Christ, the Son of God, they would be contradicting God. Correct? But they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. That's why in the next verse they were seeking to kill him. Because nobody who thinks he's on the side of God wants to be told, no, you're not on the side of God. You're on the side of the devil. Nobody wants to be told that. And proud people will dig in their heels. Proud people will dig a bigger hole for themselves and rail and rant against what the speaker of truth is telling him. That's what proud people will do. And that's what they did. See also in verse 17 how Jesus connects himself to his father. My father. He says, my father. Notice this. This is a fact throughout the scripture that Jesus does not, along with his disciples, address God as our father. When Jesus is referring to his father in his unique relationship as the only begotten son of God, he refers to his father as my father. But when he teaches us to pray, such as Matthew 6, 9 to 13, he teaches us us to say, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. He teaches us to say our father, but Jesus does not categorize himself with us because of his unique relationship to the father. When he says my father, he is making a claim of a unique relationship between himself and God the Father. A relationship that no human has. 
And the Jews knew that. Verse 18, the Jews knew it. For this cause, or for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 18 is explanatory. This is John the Apostle in verse 18 explaining to us that those Jews were offended and wanted to put Jesus to death because Jesus called God his own father. You see, they understood the unique way that Jesus meant my father. They understood it because they, it says in in, uh, 18, John says that they knew he was calling God his own father. God is Christ's own Father in a way that is completely different, completely unique to you and me. They knew it, they hated it, and wanted to put Jesus to death. They immediately they wanted to grab him and put him to death. They had that kind of murderous thought towards these things. Based on two falsehoods, verse 18, based on two falsehoods, breaking the Sabbath, and calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They knew that Jesus was equating himself to God the Father. Now, this is what has happened. But how about if we unpack a few of the things that are here in our passage? Let's unpack a few things that we need to clarify on this matter. Um, One is in relation to The healing, in relation to the healing. We saw that this man did not know who Jesus was. He did not know he was a savior of the world. He did not know that he was a prophet of God. He did not know he was the son of God, right? He did not know who he was, that he came as the Christ into the world. He didn't know any of that because even John tells us in John five thirteen, John the Apostle tells us, but he who was healed did not know who it was. He did not know who Jesus was and the authority that Jesus had. This shows us the falsehood of the prosperity gospel and faith healing. In the prosperity gospel and faith healing, they put the burden, they put the onus, they put the responsibility upon the individual who is handicapped, who is sick, who has some dilemma in his life to overcome that dilemma. And they put that burden on that individual and say, if you have enough faith, then you will have millions of dollars. If you have enough faith, then you will get that job that you want. If you have enough faith, then you will be healed of your lameness, your blindness, your deafness, whatever it is. You will be healed if you have enough faith. But that doctrine, that teaching, assumes that everyone who is healed is healed because he exerted personal faith and needs to have a lot of it to be healed of his disease, or healed of his poverty, whatever it might be, it requires an individual's faith. 
But that's not what happened in John 5. It did not happen that way in John 5, correct? It did not happen because of this man's faith, and he was old enough. He was at least 38 years old. Jesus did not first identify who he was and preach the gospel to him. He just healed him. And later, other things were known or made known to the man. But not initially, he just healed him. So faith is not required every time to be healed. Another example, Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, remember when the 10 lepers were cleansed. Luke 17, 11. 17, 11. And it came about while he was on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a certain village, there met him 10 leprous men who stood at a distance. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. And it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where, where are they? Were none found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. His faith made him well, and he came back to glorify God, but not the nine. And this man was a Samaritan. The others were probably Jews. Is it not a characteristic of those who have true faith that they glorify God, they praise God? And how could you not do so when you are healed of leprosy? It's not too much to ask to go back and find Christ and give glory to God? It's not too much to ask. So this one man had true faith. The others did not. The other nine. Yet they were still healed. They were healed of their physical ailment, but not of their spiritual ailment. They did not have the true substantial faith that we must have. And then take, for example, all of the dead people raised from the dead in the Bible, in the time of Elijah, right? In the time of Elisha, um, Jesus healed the widow's son uh, at Nain, Luke chapter 4. In, in uh, the case of Lazarus, John chapter 11, Lazarus was dead. Lazarus did not exert faith to be raised from the dead. Neither did all of these. Whether Elijah's, the, the boy in Elijah's day, Elisha's day, that boy, or even in the case of the widow's son in Nain, None of them. How about Jairus' daughter? Jairus' daughter was also raised from the dead and she did not exert faith. So this paradigm by the prosperity preachers, the health and wealth preachers, name it and claim it preachers, what they're producing in this paradigm is not only contrary to the Bible in terms of the facts of the Bible, but it undermines true faith. And it undermines true faith in Christ where the focus is not the physical world, not the physical healing, but faith in the gospel of Christ for the salvation of souls. 
and they make a lot of money in the meantime. What they don't say, they refuse to say in terms of health and wealth is that we should pray and say, if the Lord wills, the Lord wills. Not that God does not have power. Of course he has power. He can do whatever he wants. He is God Almighty. James 4, 13. James 4, 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. What do these people assume falsely? That they are going to live and make money, at least for a year here. They're going to live the next day, which means they are falsely assuming or wanting health And then they're wanting the wealth. It's health and wealth right here in James chapter 4. And he rebukes people who think that way because they don't say 15. If the Lord wills, we shall live tomorrow or the next month or the next year or the next 10 years. We shall live and also do this or that to make wealth, to live. And when we do that, these false prosperity preachers, they are boasters They are arrogant. They practice evil. They're not doing the right thing. They are sinning against God. They should quit practicing that, preaching that, and their followers need to abandon them and walk away from them because they will lead them to hell. If a blind man guides a blind man, both of them will fall into a pit. Matthew 15, 14. Another lesson we can learn in John chapter 5 has to do with the Sabbath day. It has to do with the Sabbath. We are reminded from this, from Jesus' actions, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Like he says in Mark 2:28. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath which means that when the Sabbath was instituted in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis chapter 2, 1 to 3, when it was instituted there in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, and then it was inscribed in the tablets of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, when those events occurred, Jesus was the author of them. He was the announcer of them from heaven both in the beginning to Adam and Eve, and then also to Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus was and is the Lord of the Sabbath. Then during the time of his ministry on the earth, his incarnation, when he became a man, he exemplified, he presented a model as to its true meaning and purpose. Jesus Christ, he did so. Now, in relation to what it should be and when it should be. What it should be and when it should be. Then we'll find misunderstandings or explain the misunderstandings. What should the Sabbath be? Now, the Sabbath, it should be a time 
to worship God and to rest from our normal duties the other six days. Our normal duties, our normal money-making, our normal this or that, whatever is fine and good for us to do during the six days, we should suspend that for the Sabbath day. That is what it should be about, except for necessities and mercy, except for works of necessity and mercy. Now, when I say that, it's not an invention that I discovered. I will quote from a Baptist catechism that was produced in the 1600s, a catechism or a teaching manual, an instruction manual for spiritual truths that was printed and used from the 1600s onwards, these beliefs were there. Now, this is just one document. There are several documents from history where people express their faith and write them down to explain how they understand the Bible. And we will see it's not only them, but it is actually found in the Bible. We will find that in a moment. Here I read. I read from the the Baptist Catechism, question number 65. Question 65 says, how is the Sabbath to be sanctified? How is it to be sanctified? It says, the answer, the Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations that are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time in public and private exercises of God's worship except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. Notice the parts here. They say that the whole day is to be set apart. They say even from the employments and recreations that are lawfully done on the other days, just restrain yourself and refrain yourself from those things. Spend the whole time in public and private worship of God, except when there are works of necessity and mercy. Works of necessity and mercy. And then they have several scriptures that they cite to prove their point. Now the question is, can we say that this is found in the Bible? Can we say that this is found in the Bible? Did Jesus, the apostles, did they expect this and teach and preach this and practice it? The answer is yes. Firstly, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. 4, 16. What did Christ do on the Sabbath? 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and stood up to read. It says in 16, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. The synagogue is the place of worship, and he entered there on the Sabbath, as was his custom, as was his practice. This is what he did week by week. Jesus himself did it. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. And while you're finding Acts 17, why is this an important subject? Recently, one false teacher, a major false teacher named Andy Stanley, he criticized another pastor, John MacArthur, by saying that Jesus 
never commanded us to worship on the Sabbath or on the Lord's Day, that Jesus never issued a command. Now, what he said, Andy Stanley, as a false teacher, he actually is expressing the thoughts of many people because they think if Jesus never commanded it explicitly, you shall honor the Sabbath day, therefore, we don't need to do it. Well, sir, Mr. Stanley, Jesus never said, you shall not rape a woman. Jesus never said, you shall never have sex with children. Jesus never said, you shall never have sex with animals. He never said those things. And yet we know from the Bible and even from our own mind and conscience, common sense, that those things are criminality. Those things are sin. Those things are things that God hates. No one should ever do that. No one ever should think that way, right? Therefore, we cannot concoct false paradigms like Andy Stanley does and say, because Jesus never commanded it, therefore we can do whatever we want and feel like. That's not the way it works. Any, even a superficial reading of the Bible would not make you think that way. Acts 17. Not only did Jesus, but the Apostle Paul. Acts 17, verse 2. Acts 17, 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Paul's custom also was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He went there in order to explain and, and defend the Scriptures in relation to Jesus Christ. He also practiced going to the synagogue and worshiping and teaching on the Sabbath. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Now, let's bridge the gap between the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath, and the first day of the week. The seventh-day Sabbath and the practice or custom of worshiping on the first day of the week, which we call Sunday. Which we call Sunday, first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. Here, the church is gathered on the first day of the week in order to hear the word of God. And they even, they did it at nighttime. And further, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We'll read verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. He not only told the Corinthian churches, but the churches of the region of Galatia to do the same thing. They wanted to help other saints or other Christians who were lacking in money. They wanted to help them, so he got the wealthier ones to help the poorer ones, 
by making a collection, taking up a collection. And he assumes that it's going to be done on the first day of every week. On the first day of every week, he assumes that they're going to meet to be able to collect the money to help the poor brothers in Christ. He assumes it because they met on the first day. Then Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In verse 23, he teaches us to hold fast to our confession without wavering because God is a promise-keeping God. He's faithful. Without wavering, hold fast our confession. Well, once he says hold fast, hold on to our confession, he tells us how to do it. Verse 24, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That means when we see each other, We need to encourage each other to love God, love one another, and practice good deeds when we see each other. And how do we know he means when we see each other? Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together. Our own assembling together. He's talking about personally meeting. He says we should not forsake that. Don't have a habit of skipping. And people do. They have a habit of skipping. They skip for travel. They skip for vacations. They skip because of events. They skip for, because of hobbies and sports. They skip. People skip. But he says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, anticipating the day of the return of Christ. Meet together to worship. This is what we ought to be about. This is what Jesus was about when he worshiped and set aside the Sabbath day. Christ did it, and if we're going to be like Christ, we should do the same as the Bible prescribes. However, What was the justification for Christ to heal a man and to tell the man, take up your pallet and walk? What was the justification for that? That the Pharisees misunderstood, but the Pharisees did not practice. Let's see from the book of Luke. We have two examples from the book of Luke. Luke 13, Luke 13, 15. 13, 15. In this case, Jesus healed a woman who had an illness for 18 years. She had an illness for 18 years and he healed her on the Sabbath day. And as expected, his critics, the critics of Christ, complained about it. Verse 15, Jesus says, Luke 13, 15. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall 
and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated and the entire multitude was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Jesus humiliated his critics to their face and in the presence of other people by saying, you know, and you're not breaking the Sabbath commandment, when you are untying your ox or donkey to give water to your ox or donkey. You, you water your donkeys. You give them the water they need to drink every day and even on the Sabbath day. And you know, Moses did not say you can't do that. Moses said you could do that because that's a work of necessity. It must happen. And so, you object to me because I healed this woman on the Sabbath day when she was bound by Satan. Satan had control of her body and you were upset at me for giving her life, renewing her life on the Sabbath day. You should be ashamed. You care more about those animals than you care about this human being and this woman. Chapter 14, chapter 14 of Luke. Luke 14, Jesus heals a man also. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day. He heals a man on the Sabbath day. And then they, they are looking at him and Jesus picks it up at verse three. Verse three, Luke 14, three. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent and he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. They had no answer. They know that if their son or if their ox had fallen into a, a well or a pit in a hole on the Sabbath day, was there desperately injured there at the bottom of the hole, you would not run and rush and call everybody you needed to call to spare your ox or even, and more especially to spare your son. You're not going to let him wallow there injured for a whole day the next day and then say, okay, now we're going to call all of the emergency personnel to help my son out of the pit. No, that's the work of necessity. There's an emergency. There's an urgency to this matter. And Jesus knew of that. Moses knew of that. But the Pharisees, they didn't practice that. They were so, they were so enthralled by their own thinking, their own traditions, that they did not carefully understand the word of God and obey it accordingly. They did not do so. There are a couple of more points I'd like to make, but we'll pick it up next time, both on what Jesus said about this man being uh, not, told not to sin anymore, and also, verse 18, breaking the Sabbath some more and the deity of Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Amen.